Hello and welcome to this packed edition of The Stack. We'll reminisce about the wonderful Entertainment Weekly, which announced the end of its print edition this week. Plus, we head to Uruguay to speak with Natalia Hinchuk on her new title, And Flor, all about Uruguayan flowers. Plus, Ben Clement from Good Sport magazine and Hello Gorgeous magazine, a glossy title about living with HIV. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, we have many reasons to celebrate, from Uruguayan flowers to a cool sports title. But listeners, this week I felt quite sad with the news that the printed edition of Entertainment Weekly is no more. I had a chat with Monaco's Tom Edwards about the importance of the title. And we even have a little clip of an interview that Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, did with Entertainment Weekly's Dan, editor-in-chief, back in 2017. Let's have a listen. Fernando, a regular topic of conversation on the stack is the demise and then often the sort of rebirth of heritage titles, old favourites. This week, there is another magazine on the pile and it's sadly not a rebirth. It is a departure, well, as far as we understand for now, of a, well, this is a pretty big title, however you look at it. A very big and iconic title, Tom. Entertainment Weekly is no more. I say no more. The printed edition is not going to exist anymore. Not only Entertainment Weekly. I have to add other magazines from the same group, like InStyle uh, magazine, will also have the same faith. Although, very few titles, uh, like People, will remain in print, of course. It's still very much high in circulation. The brand was to exist in a digital world, Tom, but it's very sad news because Entertainment Weekly is a very important magazine for all those entertainment fans. First of all, as the name said, it used to be Weekly. So it's like, you know, if you read The Economist or any other weekly magazine, but just for the entertainment fans. And that was quite unique when it was launched in 1990. Uh, before, of course, you could read things on the newspapers, but before it was very much industry-based, if you wanted to know more about box office, the charts. And I think Entertainment Weekly had this nice mix of industry news with something quite fun. The covers, I remember, they were so kind of fun, very colorful. I mean, it, it, I was very young, actually, when I bought my first Entertainment Weekly. You know, in Brazil, we didn't have many international magazines at the time. The famous ones like People, Time Magazine and Entertainment Weekly. I'll never forget my first cover was, I think, 97, 98, showing my age, Tom, <laughs> uh, with Jeff Goldblum on the cover. He was uh, the main star of The Lost World, the sequel for Jurassic Park. Iconic. Um but I have a little surprise for you. So oh, I don't, on, I don't know if you, if you did know this about our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, but he spoke to Henry Goldblatt, who was then editor of Entertainment Weekly, back in 2017 on The Stack. I chose a little clip. Shall we have a listen? Let's listen. Let's uh, maybe start to uh, rewind uh, and go down memory lane a bit. I, I have to disclose as well, I, I wrote for uh, Entertainment Weekly once upon a time, in the very, very early days, when I was a, a fledgling cub reporter. That's excellent. Do you remember your first story? I, I, I don't. I think it might have been an interview with Christy Turlington or something. We'll have to, we'll have to go back and, and look through the bound editions uh, and, and find <laughs> out. But uh, yeah, er, early days. And you know, maybe it's a good place to start because that was, you know, in many ways, a golden era of magazines. We can all look back at the, the late 80s, uh, early 90s, and particularly 
a company at, at that point uh, like Time Warner, Time Inc. Uh, as, as a magazine uh, business then, was all mahogany lined walls. And I can remember you know, every editor seemed to have, you know, their own ensuite bathroom. And it was it was quite a, an amazing time. Maybe let's just talk about the, the start of, of Entertainment Weekly and, and what niche it, it sought to fill and, and the role you're playing today. Absolutely. Well, as you said, Entertainment Weekly started in 1990, and there was nothing like it at the time, which sort of seems weird given all the competition in entertainment news space today. And it was the idea was to bring the trades to the masses. So the box office, the box office information, the TV ratings, stuff that people and entertainment geeks were really, really excited about, they didn't quite have access to, of course, in the same way that they did today. And uh, you know, I just we just recently moved to offices, and I unearthed the memo that uh, Jeff Jarvis, the founding editor wrote about Entertainment Weekly, and it was, uh, it, and he made a big stand that this magazine has to be weekly as opposed to monthly because this information is so timely in a weekly fashion. Of course, um, 25, 26 years later, that's entirely different. But we still try to adhere to that core DNA, which is making entertainment speak to both the trade industry and to the um, lay people who are just interested in entertainment itself, and that DNA sort of sticks to us today. Fernando, that is really, really well. There's a plenty, plenty of things that are interesting there. Thinking back to a Tyro reporter, Ty Brulee, cutting his teeth with his big Christy Sellington exclusive or whatever it might have been. <laughs> but it is funny, isn't it? That's not that long ago. Five years, I mean, it's a lifetime in some ways in publishing. But in the lifespan of Entertainment Weekly, it's funny that we heard those reflections from just five years ago about, well, you know, this idea of like the trade to the masses is gone, this weird urgency that's completely been overtaken because. All of that information is available minute by minute, not just hour by hour. Do you think, uh, again, is this a title that maybe fell victim to some of that complacency about the threat of digital? Or do you think it is a candidate? We've spoken so often, whether it's about, you know, the face or various attempts to get Playboy rebooted for the 150th time, that this is a magazine that has enough kind of social capital, particularly stateside, that maybe someone might say, no, 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 we, we need to keep a print version of this going. Listen, Tony, it's, I think Entertainment Weekly is a very difficult case here. First of all, the brand is very well known, especially in the United States. So it is powerful. I don't know how their digital presence will look like. But even the name, it's saying there, Entertainment Weekly. More recently, the magazine became a monthly title. So it was a little bit weird, and I am a subscriber, full disclaimer here. It was a <laughs> bit weird receiving the magazine, I mean, which, I mean, the name, the weekly, it, it's written in there. So it did felt a little bit old, even when they have their Oscar issue. When it comes out, we've already read everything we need to know about the Oscars. You have, Fernando. Ex- exactly, exactly. But I don't know. I mean, we had many cases during our history here on the stack tone of magazines returning we're fairly successful we have the face interview magazine playboy it is a little bit of a struggle but i know they're trying i mean just the fact that they're trying that means there's something to it as well so i don't know it's still very early days i just find it quite sad that i think meredith the group that owns the brand it, it was such kind of an abrupt decision i think 200 mm. job positions will go not only for entertainment weekly and they said you know what everything's moving to digital but i wonder if they will need to rethink i think where entertainment weekly could work is to do specials for example if you're a fan of the sopranos they could do a sopranos kind of booklet i think that's quite on trend at the moment mm. so but i think giving up completely print that's a very rushed decision in my opinion mm. 
Let's move on now to beautiful Uruguay, where I had the pleasure to speak with Natalia Hinchuk, who just published a new title on Uruguayan flowers. It even includes a heartfelt interview with former Uruguayan president, President Mujica. Natalia also tells me the plans for her upcoming print magazine. I began to investigate the, the flower landscape here in Uruguay. I learned that around year 2000, lots of imported flowers started coming here. And uh, because it was not such a good business anymore to plant flowers. So that was like the landscape for the last maybe 20 years. And now what's happening is that people are becoming more interested in planting here, but also in like native flora. And that for me, it was very interesting to learn that those who are flowers who were around all the time, you know, like for years and years, but people didn't notice them because they were there, you know, like they were growing wild. And uh, so uh, there are some flowers that are uh, native and uh, like parvena, for instance, which is a, it's a little violet flower that's very good with, you know, pollinizators. And what I learned, uh, which was curious, was that petunia, which really, I don't know the name in, in, in English, but it was originally from Uruguay, you know, because it was very common that the explorers in the 18th, 19th century brought flowers from remote places to Europe. But I learned that that was a Uruguayan flower, actually. So it was very cool. That's so nice. I didn't know because, I mean, it's quite an important flower. I mean, it's very kind of famous in a way yeah. if, I hear the, if I hear the name. And, and by the way, the book itself is a thing of beauty as well. Of course, it's a book and everything, but it reminds me of, you know, those kind of amazing kind of uh, almost coffee table magazines you see around as well. So clearly you have an eye for magazines as well. I know that. Yes. So yes. Um, I wonder if you can tell me about your other projects as well besides the book. Well, as I told you, I, I have always worked with fashion and I have my own fashion platform blog like for the last 14 years with a partner. Uh, she's actually Brazilian too. And since uh, 2020, I have been working on a new project called Verdor, which is based on the new legal, more luminous culture of cannabis which is also huge here because, uh, you know, as of course, you know, Uruguay was the first country to legalize consumption. And well, it is about, we believe that cannabis has a lot of values, respect for nature, sustainability, freedom, freedom of thought. I mean, we, we saw that with cannabis, there's a, a new culture beginning to unveil. So we wanted to, to put that into words and into thoughts and present some people, which are not actually even consumers, you know? It's like more of a, a mindset, a way of living. And that is Verdor. And Verdor won a prize here in Uruguay. So we are working on a print version of the... Actually, now it's like a newsletter and Verdor Mag, but we're working on the, on the print version, which is kind of rare because, you know, print magazines are almost extinct here. So it's kind of revolutionary too. 
And it's amazing because, as you rightly said, I think Uruguay has something unique about cannabis, at least in Latin America. I know it's changing in many countries. I think there are new laws. Do you think you can get not only Uruguayans to read uh, Verdor, but also other people, you know, in other countries as well? Not necessarily South America, but what's the... No, no, we're highly interested in, in South American culture because we believe the world is looking at South America for inspiration, you know? So we think we should really like focus on that. But as I said, I mean, I think people are interested in, in new things, in things that are real, that are authentic. And the cannabis scene, like the, the real, you know, hardcore cannabis scene has always been like very authentic in that way. So I think, yeah, of course, we're, we're, we're from Uruguay, but you know, we are for the world too. And Natalia, another interesting aspect of the book, I mean, you managed to speak with uh, former president Mujica, which became a worldwide icon. And he does have a close relationship with flowers. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes. When I started like working on the, on the floral history, there was not a floral history written, not even, you know, you, could, you couldn't get it anywhere. So I began to investigate and, and I saw that while well, the Japanese community had lots of um, of incidents in the in the floral industry here, but also I came to realize that like the like I call him the best known florist in the world uh, is actually Pepe Mojica, which was our president. But he was in the beginning of the days he was a florist, and then he he used to sell flowers in the the local markets and uh so i said look for this uruguayan flora book i have to get an interview of him and it was not easy because um well he's very like sought after you know and also because of the pandemic he was not like really keen on seeing people but finally i got to convince him and um and it was really cool. I mean, we went to the, his chakra. Uh, he was there, you know, like really authentic too. <laughs> and um, he didn't want to talk much about flowers because he has like the old school view of flowers that, you know, flowers were only for like, like a death thing, you know, like funerals. And once the importation of flowers began, he was like, now it's dead, you know, it's, he has a very pessimistic version of the, of the flowers here, but he's also a nature lover. And uh, for me, it was really inspiring to, to talk to him. Thank you very much, Natalia. And Flor is published by Penguin Libros. And we welcome back on the stack Ben Clement from the great Good Sport magazine. The magazine had a revamp for their most recent edition, issue 5. Scent plays a big part in the new issue, where they celebrate sweat, sunrise and self-reflection. Ben tells me more. The changes have been from literally from every point of that we could find. Um, and you're right, there's definitely a lot more fun a lot more color, a lot more playfulness within the design. We work with two brilliant new designers, Gria and Joel, who we met here in Australia. And we worked with them really closely throughout the whole process. 
rather than just giving them kind of content towards the end, we worked all the way through kind of developing a new identity with new fonts and, and kind of new color theory and new color harmony working together throughout the magazine. And we try to push it further in terms of not just like ink on pages, but you'll notice there's like the tabs cut out and there's kind of symbols and icons throughout the magazine now, um, which was kind of informed from our new process of kind of creating the content instead of just uh, having contributors, you know, submit or pitch an idea or us, you know, reaching out to someone, we, we really went right into the research and we kind of, you might notice in the magazine, it, it kind of looks like an A to Z, almost like an encyclopedia. Um, and we worked with each letter and we came up with like a phrase or a, a letter or a word and we researched from there and then dive further. And then we started working with our contributors and photographers and writers from there. So it was a really, really interesting process to go on. And it really stretched our thinking beyond what we've ever done before, really. And you mentioned the word playfulness before. And, and I totally agree. The magazine looks very playful. And one of my favorite stories, you know, what does sport smell like? And I think smell has been quite a big theme for this issue. There's even some playfulness. You had kind of a, a kind of a scent card. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that was almost one of the beginning stories that kind of uh, rolled on into the rest of how the magazine came together. So James and I, who we were sitting down discussing the magazine and how it would come together, we were like, well, what does sport smell like? Just kind of off the cuff as a bit of a joke, really. And then we decided to research and we discovered um, Saskia Wilson-Brown, who is based in Los Angeles, who runs the Institute of Art and Olfaction. And she's quite connected to um, Cicel Tolas, who people probably know through the scent world. And so she runs this amazing institute and we just got in touch and she was amazing to work with. And she ended up writing the essay based on like the history of scent and through sport. But we kind of were like, well, if we're going to write it in a magazine, what is the next step? Can we do something else? Can we have a more tangible, more visceral, sensory-based kind of experience? And she said, of course, we can make a sense. So she basically came up with these different scenarios. And, and what you'll see in, in the scent card is two different scenarios. One is like the body and one is the gym based on like a boxing gym. Actually, the scenario was a boxing gym in London late at night and you'll get hints of wood and, and rubber and like deep heat and a bit of metallic kind of blood and things like that. And it really surprised us. We kind of think thought it might sm smell like a little funky, but it actually smells quite beautiful. Um, and we are hoping to release it as a commercial scent at some point this year. To be honest, I think that's a fantastic idea because I always wondered, you know, what sport uh, smells like. And, and I think that's a great plan. And you guys have a shop as well on, on, on your website. So it wouldn't be the first time you would kind of have a product. And I think, I think that's such a good connection between product and magazine as well. Yeah, I think for us, we, as much as we love the magazine, you know, sitting down, reading, absorbing it, we, we kind of thought in this issue, what, what happens beyond the reading and the absorbing of the words? And can we go a bit further than that and have these kind of tangents of whether it's an event or a product or something that ties to that story? 
And that kind of helped us launch the magazine. We had like a week long series of events and we pulled some of our favorite stories and turned them again into these uh, events or experiences or, or an exhibition. And that's um, been a really fun process. And another story that I really loved about the Palestine skateboarding community, which is, you know, besides being a great story, again, more playfulness. There is even kind of another card with a recipe, which I thought it was such a nice touch. Tell us a bit more about the story. It's a really interesting one. Yeah, again, just through our connections over the years, um, when I was living in Amsterdam, I met Tom Bird, who, who works with SkatePal, and he's their graphic designer. And they released a, a recipe book, uh, I think it was last year, and we were just chatting a bit more about it. And we're like, can we do a bit more with, with the story? And let's tell more of a food-related story around sport. And they were perfect because we got to kind of talk more about their recipe book and utilize some of their amazing photos and, and just tell, honestly, a really beautiful story. And we were like, well, if we're going to talk about food, we have to give people a chance to, to cook it. So that's where the recipe card came in. And one of the illustrations is from the kids who they hang out with and build skate parks with. So it's kind of all come together that way. I think we'd like to do more of like a food event where people can come and sit down and actually like have a, have a meal together or, and have a chef and, and things like that. So I think that'd be really fun. Maybe I've asked you last time we spoke, but do you practice any sport or do you have like a, a favorite sport? Because I mean, the, the good thing about good sport, you literally cover every single sport. There's no kind of prejudice in that sense. Yeah. But, but personally, yeah. which one do you like? Um, or? I'm really big into running. I spend a lot of my time reading about running, watching running and, and running myself. I also practice and teach yoga. I'm really intrigued by rock climbing and by bouldering at the moment. So I'm kind of, I want to give that a go. Um, and something we're intrigued as, as a magazine is, is kind of learning a new sport for the first time and, and what that kind of does to your brain and, and to your confidence and things like that. So we might look at some more obscure sports and give them a go this year. And of course, issue five is out now. People can go and buy on your website and you have, great stockists around the world, but what's the plan? When can we expect perhaps issue six, uh, perhaps a bit too early to say, but. Uh... <laughs> well, with the classic way of good sport is, is it's a little bit unpredictable. We've never followed a um, traditional publishing path, but we've got a really great team and we're really excited by what we're doing at the moment. I guess what we're doing at the kind of going into the future is more of like a studio. So kind of applying the right ideas to the right mediums and, and finding ways for that to kind of circle back to print. Um, so I think we might spend the year like experimenting with a lot of ideas and seeing where they land and then kind of grouping them together and, and finding a way to get that back into issue six, perhaps. And issue five of Good Sport is out now. Finally on the show, to end on an optimistic note, we have Dutch title Hello Gorgeous, a beautiful title for those who live with HIV. The gloss is also produced by people with HIV and helped to break taboos and fight the stigma since its launch a decade ago. It is published four times a year and distributed free of charge in the Netherlands. I spoke of Leo Schenk and Andrea Bandelli. Hello Gorgeous is a magazine for, well, primarily for people living with HIV. 
and we started it in 2012 with a bunch of uh, friends of mine. Uh, and we thought that at that time, the magazines that featured our uh, newspaper articles that featured people living with HIV were mostly uh, in sort of depressive mood. You you saw when you saw people living with HIV, they were on their back photographed or the name was false, you know, and it was a time where, well, most of the people I work for the magazine have HIV or live with HIV, and we didn't feel that gloom and doom. Uh, and we wanted to to make a magazine which represented more the way we felt about living with HIV, uh, shamelessly about HIV. So we made this magazine, and, and it's I call it also an intervention. It's supposed to um, to empower people in HIV, you know, the, not only by the stories, but also by the beautiful design and uh, the photographs. And it's nice you've mentioned the design because that's how that, that was my perception. I you know I don't speak Dutch, but just looking at the magazine, it does have a kind of a positive uh, vibe to it. And you're right; most of the coverage of HIV perhaps is is very much gloomy or kind of very dark in the tone when you look at the at the you know the press in general. So Andrea, tell us a bit more. Was it easy actually at the beginning when the magazine was launched? Was was there a fear? that a magazine like this would work or not? Yes, there was also, somebody will say, well, you know, you will have enough material to make, to do maybe one or two issues and then, you know, then, then it's over. Uh, well, 10 years later and 40 years uh, issues later, you can see that, you know, still going strong. There was some fear, of course, also being a magazine, which is indeed shameless about a HIV. And also we feel that, that people with HIV shouldn't have any shame. There was, of course, at the beginning, a little bit of fear of being exposed and being visible. But something wonderful happened. Everybody who was featured in the magazine uh, felt really empowered by being in the magazine and um, really overcame any feeling of fear that they could uh, experience. And we have so many wonderful stories of people who Actually, there is one which I love. Um, one of the first issues, one of the people featured in the magazine appeared on the back cover. And actually he was, he was afraid. So he said, well, I want to, so much to be in the magazine, but I don't want to appear with my face. So we put him on the back cover and uh, just from behind. And that evening there was a, a party in, in, in Amsterdam and he went around with the issue in his hands telling all his friends, look, look, I'm in the magazine, I'm in the magazine. <laughs> and he was so proud, even from the back. And then a few years later, actually, he appeared also with his uh, face and a full story in the magazine. And those are so wonderful stories that show the empowerment that such a magazine can give. Yeah. And in the beginning, also, uh, there were some people who thought we were being too glamorous about HIV, you know, and that, that came especially from people who, are, who were not living with HIV, but more, more the, the HIV professionals. And uh, well, we proved them wrong. I think it's uh, we we don't shy away from uh, stories that are not as positive or or stories of of, of people who have been hurt uh, along the way. But I think the stories all, always have this empowerment ending. And talking about the issues, I mean, what are the highlights of the latest issue? We we made a, a very unique uh, cover. We have two covers or two I decided two entrances into <laughs> the magazine. The first side is. Uh, about uh, the body, body issues, and then other side of the magazine is uh, more about mental health. So it's a, like a, a body and mind issue we make now. So we have uh, an interview with a very famous Caribbean uh, gay queer psychiatrist, Glenn Helberg, who tells about um, 
his work doing more inclusive work now. We have uh, an interview with um, activists doing more around activism, around um, people with um, uh, disabilities. Yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. And we found a lot of uh, similarities between being activists for HIV and an activist for more rights for people with disabilities. Mm. We also have every issue uh, photo, reportage, and now we have uh, like an English uh, or German, is it indeed, uh, photographer who makes very interesting photos of, of ecstasy and then under a microscope and also uh, an English photographer who photographs her mother and herself uh, in a naked position. It's very, it's a very good, uh, you see the aging and then what it does to people and, and also how, how she relates to her mother. Mm. And language-wise, I know the magazine is in Dutch, but have you ever tried to experiment with English as well, or you're both happy, you know, to keep it Dutch as a as you are in Amsterdam, of course. Yes, we 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 um, made a special issue during the AIDS 2018 World Conference that was in Amsterdam. We we uh, partnered up with the IAS, the organization who, who uh, organizes this uh, conference. So we made a international issue for that was the only print issue in English. In English, yes. We made some digital digital English edition as well, so like a collage from articles that we already published in Dutch, and then we translated it and made a online edition for it. But still in, in the future, we want to do it more. Uh, and also we made a Suriname edition. Oh, yes. Yes. When we went to Suriname, very hot, but very nice. And then we made yeah. an edition. Yeah. Hello Guru is called <laughs> like a, a version of Hello Gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. Being, being a community project, of course, is the translation is only the first step, but you also need the people around to make it alive, you know, so uh, uh, but definitely there are a couple of, of issues in English online for, uh, for those who can appreciate also to the, the design and the, and the overall concept of the magazine. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. It's Sister Sisters with Filthy Gorgeous. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.